Good morning, church family. It's great to be here with you all. If you have your Bible, turn in those to John 13. That's where we'll be for our scripture reading. We'll read from verses 1 through 3 and then 18 through 30. I'm using the New American Standard version, if you're curious, 1995. But today we're reading John 13. We're unpacking verses 18 through 30. And today we enter the mind of a murderer. We see how Judas became the villain of villains, how he became the one who betrayed Jesus, and how we can avoid the same fate. Because what I see in our passage, John thirteen eighteen through 30, is a warning to all of us to be careful not to become like him. Look at John 13, I'll begin in verses 1, and I'll go to 3, and then skip to verse 18. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing, seeing, quite literally, seeing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to tell us to the fullest, the infinite capacity of love from God. During supper, the devil, having already put into the mind and heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come forth from God and is going back to God. Now verse 18. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Ego Amy, I am. Truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I, I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Well, the disciples, uh, confused, began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Judas has them all fooled. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And so Simon Peter lifted up his hand quite literally, motioned to him, leave it up to Simon Peter to ask the awkward question. He said, tell us of who it is of whom you are speaking that will betray you. Jesus leaning back, or John leaning back on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now after the morsel, Satan then entered Judas. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do now, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, go buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Amen. Thus says the Lord. Lamentations 3. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new and fresh every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that we wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have in your word of just your character and your loving kindness, that it is infinite, that it is ceaseless, that it never ends. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would go forth. Uh, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would take your word, move it beyond our mind, and let it become part of the transformation, becoming slowly more and more like your son. Your word is powerful, and may it shape us and change us. Thank you for today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I titled my sermon, Becoming Judas. Becoming Judas. Uh, Today I'd like to do something a little bit different than I normally do. I would like to kind of construct his biography, because I want us to dive deep into the life and into the mind of, of the man that betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Why? So that we would avoid the same fate. 
There was a first Judas, and there have been millions since. Before we look at his life in our passage today in John 13, let us remember kind of where we are in the story of John. Where are we in the Gospel of John? We are in Thursday night, that Jesus only has 24 more hours to live. He has spent 30-something years in, on earth, and he has spent three years of his life discipling 12 men that still don't get it, okay? They don't get it until after he's gone. And then he spent his three years ministering and loving and healing the masses. And where we pick up in John 13, it is Thursday night, and as I've said, within 24 hours, Jesus has nails put into his hands and into his feet, and he sheds his blood for the remission of sin. And where we are in John 13 is that Jesus spends these three or four chapters giving last-minute instructions to his disciples before he departs. Two weeks ago, we unpacked Reflecting the Light, that in the truth of John chapter 12, we saw that we are sons of light. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, that we are part of the family of God, that we are now lights to the world, and what are we to do? We are to reflect the light by, with our love, life, and lingo, not faulting ourselves when people reject the gospel and not fearing the opinions of others when they do. Last week, we saw the ministry of the towel. It's Thursday night, and what happens right before Jesus takes the towel, probably? His disciples are arguing amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on earth. And he's, despite what Jesus has said to this point, Jesus has told them time and time again that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And the night he, before he dies, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. They still haven't gotten it into their minds what really following Christ is all about. So then Jesus, instead of saying the same broken record again, he gets up, he takes off his outer garments, he goes to the porch, picks up the water pitcher and a bowl, he puts it underneath their feet, and he cleans 24 smelly and dirty feet. Why? He demonstrates his love that is explained in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and he also gives them an example to follow. Kind of the question we answered last week is why and how should we demonstrate love to others? My point was because of Christ's love and example, we should demonstrate love by serving people in practical ways. And then today's story is really the story of Judas. I'm not sure I've ever preached a sermon on Judas before. Um, There's probably not a popular sermon to talk about, but it is unavoidable. If we really want to preach the scripture and preach the text verse by verse, then John 13, 18 through 30 centers upon one character, so we must unpack his story. But I really want to dive in, and I really want to understand how Judas became what he became, of how someone could sit at the feet of Jesus for three years and, and forego all of the love and all of the truth that he has learned and to sell out his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. How could that possibly happen? That his disciple has lived with him for three years could possibly sell out despite sitting at the feet of the Son of God. But as I was unpacking the text, I realized that becoming Judas is something that can happen to any of us. That there was a first Judas, and there have been millions since. If you think about it, we've all known a Judas in our life. We've all known people that have walked with the Savior, that have walked with Jesus for a number of years, that appear to be a disciple, appear to be the follower of Christ, and then they walk away. That, that, that This thing that we unpack with Judas is not something new. It's something that we have all probably puzzled over and scratched our head and said, okay, I thought you were this great and mighty Christian, and then all of a sudden you betray your Savior and you walk away never to claim the cross of Christ again. Let me just ask you the question. How many of you, I want you to raise your hand to this, how many of you have ever known somebody that was a follower of Christ and then walks away from the faith? Okay. 
I'm going to ask you, how many of you have known at least two people that have walked away from the faith? Okay. When I look back at my life, no longer do I see one or two faces, but now I see a crowd that could probably fill up an aisle. We've all known people that we grew up in youth group, right, that, that we thought that were these great and mighty Christians that all of a sudden fell. We've known people in college. We've known church leaders, evangelists, pastors, televangelists, maybe not, um, with church members that seem passionate for the Lord and then shockingly walk away. How does that happen? How does it happen? What's the process that somebody takes from being this glowing, mighty, shiny Christian and then to slowly betray the name in which they have been called? I think back on my life and every stage of my life I have known people that look like Peter but end up like Judas. When I was in youth group, There were a dozen or more kind of youth, high school, college leaders, and we were all just passionate for the Lord. And if out of the dozen that were really uh, core youth leaders, maybe four still walk with the Lord today. I've known many professing Christians at Westminster Christian Academy, where I grew up in elementary school. A lot of those children that grew up at that school, a lot of them have forsaken the name by which they have been called. I, when I worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and, you know, I talk about that from time to time, and sweating to death in August, cleaning cars, there were professing Christians at Enterprise that confessed to be Peter, but lived like Judas, willing to betray the Savior the moment a temptation arose. But where would you expect an oasis? Where would you expect the one place on planet Earth that there would be 100% Peters and no Judases? When I went to seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, I, it was a beautiful time of my life. It was a wonderful three and a half years of getting uh, shot in the face by a fire hose. It was, it was beautiful, though. Um, but I expected, you know, everybody to be there to be a Peter. Somebody that, is, that may have stick their foot in their mouth, but somebody that is sincere in their faith. But there were still Judases, people that were wolves in sheep's clothing, people that appeared... Uh, to be this, this spiritual person, but by the end, I, I knew one guy in particular, by the end of his graduation, after spending $60,000 on training and sitting at the feet of other people, by the end of his seminary education, he was done with the faith. How does that happen? As I look back on my life, faces of Judas's have turned into a crowd. Jeff, Abby, Michael, Sarah, Matt, Ashley, Bert, Brett, and Sean, just to name a few. These people are walking the path of being a follower of him and then slowly, suddenly go a different way. I plan to talk more about the theology of what I'm discussing this morning next week, but I want to drive a thought into your mind that no one is immune that no one is immune to the sin and the temptations of the enemy to slowly betray the truth and to cause doubt on the scripture that we believe is God's word, that not one of us here today is immune. That Judas's story that we see throughout the Gospels in John chapter 13 is a warning to all of us not to follow suit, that none of us are immune to the temptation to believe lies, none of us are exempt from the wiles and arrows of the devil, And what does it say that the enemy is a lion looking to devour your soul? He is looking for the weakest place in your armor and in your life to drive a wedge between you and the Lord to cause you to begin to dismiss the truth that we believe. Judas is a warning. And I pray that none of us become like him. That all of us that are sitting in this room, all of us that are tuning in online, that we understand through his example today the four steps of of betraying Jesus, of regressing in his faith. I hope that by unpacking his story that we can avoid the same fate. Because I don't want one of us here today in two years to be walking away from the faith that we know and believe. To walk away from the truth of the scripture, to doubt it in the slightest. 
But the enemy is looking at you and he wants to enter and whisper in your ear to doubt the truth. Let us not be another Jeff, Abby, Michael, Sarah, Matt, Ashley, Burke, Brett, Sean, or Judas. But how can we avoid his fate? We can avoid it by understanding Judas's story. So if you have your Bible, turn in John chapter 13. And today, I've already mentioned this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to kind of write Judas's biography in the beginning. I'm going to understand kind of where he came from. And then we're going to unpack the scripture that we have before us today. And I, uh, I believe that we can learn from Judas. What do they say? That those who don't, do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. And I pray that we would learn from Judas's story. The name Judas itself appears 45 times in the New Testament. It is a very common, it's a, Judas, the name Judas is very common, uh, a Hebrew name. It comes from the Hebrew name of Judah. And one of Jesus' own brothers was named Judah, Judas or Judah. And that is the guy who wrote the book of Jude. Judas the disciple, as we probably know, is the son of Simon. He is from the town of Curioth. That's where we get the word Iscariot, the town of Curioth. He is the only disciple, from not from Galilee, but from the lower parts of the kingdom. Judas, the one who betrays Jesus in the list of disciples, he is always... The one mentioned last in the list of disciples and always notated behind it, the betrayer or the one who betrays Jesus. Who else is Judas? He is the treasurer of the disciples seen in John chapter 12, 4 through 6 and John 13 verse 29. He is in charge of the money box. That is very important to understand his motivation to betray the Savior. He is the treasurer of disciples. He is in charge of the money box. And he is the one, if you remember the story, and John, earlier in the Gospel of John, he's the one that complains when Mary breaks open a $50,000 bottle of perfume. A $50,000 bottle of perfume that would probably make us all cringe a little bit, right? I would love to have that in my retirement, okay? So so some of us think, but Mary breaks open this bottle, and what does Judas say? She chastises her and says that we could have sold that bottle of perfume to feed the poor. But Judas' motivation was not noble. He just wanted to fill his own pockets. Jesus calls Judas in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4. Let me say that again. Jesus calls Judas a disciple in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, despite knowing what? That Judas will betray him. Jesus knows the ones whom he has chosen. Judas' treason is foretold far before John 6, verse 70, but that's the first time it's mentioned here. Judas lives three years with Jesus, and then Judas goes to the chief priest in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Have you ever asked the question, why 30 pieces of silver? Why does Judas sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver? Two reasons. First is because of prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11, that the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. But also, according to Old Testament law, 30 pieces of silver was a price of a slave. So Judas sells out the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Yahweh, he sells him out for the price of a slave. What does that tell you about what he thinks about Jesus by the end? And if you remember the story of Judas's biography, Judas sells out for 30 pieces of silver, and then he leads the chief priests and soldiers up to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane, And how does he betray Jesus? He betrays him with a kiss in the most intimate and cowardly way. He points that this man right here that I'm about to kiss is the criminal, is the guy. And then what happens? If you know the rest of Judas' story, Judas, after he betrays the Son of God, he is overwhelmed with guilt. He takes the 30 pieces of silver that were given to him. He returns it to the chief priest. He throws it on the temple floor And then he is so riddled by guilt that he then runs away and hangs himself. But he doesn't even do that well. 
either the rope or the branch broke that Judas hung himself on. And what does it say in Acts chapter 1, verse 18? Judas, Judas's rope broke. Judas fell headlong. And this is how Judas died. He said Judas was bursting open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. It must have been very painful. Um, but then what happens? Judas sells his Savior out, the Son of God, the Son of Man, for 30 pieces of silver for the price of a slave. He throws his money back out of guilt, hangs himself, bursts open in the middle, dies. And then what happens? The chief priests take the 30 pieces of silver, and it is blood money. What can they do with it? Then they buy the potter's field and convert that field basically to a cemetery. Judas is described the son of perdition, the son of hell, and the betrayer. And what is amazing about Judas... Perhaps the most amazing, amazing thing about him is that he was such a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was such a hypocrite that he fooled everyone. That even after, if you notice in the scripture, even after Jesus hands the morsel to Judas, what did his, what did his disciples say? Who is going to betray him? We're confused. What's going on? He has everyone fooled. He's such a hypocrite. He's so good at playing a different role that his own 12 people that he lived with for three years have no earthly clue that he is the one that is going to betray him. But Judas does not fool everyone. He does not fool the Son of God. And Judas's biography and all this kind of uh, this, this information, what can we walk away with? Well, number one, that Judas's life examples the danger of loving money. Number two, it reminds us the temptation that we all face to doubt. Number three, his life shows us that the devil will always be at work among God's people. Can I just say that again? The devil will always be at work among God's people. And then number four, perhaps most importantly, when I see, when I look at the prophecies, which we'll unpack more today as I unpack the scripture with you guys, is what I see in the story of Judas is the sovereign will of God. That God could, underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign will, Judas can exercise his own free will to fulfill the exact plan of God. And today I want us to learn from Judas, and I really want to answer the question, how did Judas become Judas? I mean, how could this man that lived with the Son of God for three years, that saw the miracles of the lame man being healed beside the pool of Bethesda, to see the miracle of taking a happy meal and feeding a stadium of people, to see the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and calming the seas, how could Judas become the betrayer of the Son of God. And if we want to avoid the same fate of Judas, then we must learn from his example, because those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. So what I want to do today is, I've already kind of given the backlog of, of his life and kind of how he was raised and kind of his ideology. And then today I want us to enter the text with this information kind of as our lens to understand how he can make such a decision. And I want to see four different steps that he takes to betraying the Savior. And if you have your Bible, uh, look at it with me. Today we're going from verses 18 through 30. And you could break this passage down into three or four parts, but I'm going to break it down into three for our sake. Because I'm a preacher, we like the three thing for whatever reason. So verses 18 through 20 is kind of one part, and then you have verses 21 through 26 is part two, and then verses 27 through 30 is part three. So notice with me part one of verses 18 through 20. Part one is called the treason reported. The treason reported if you have your notes. And watch the report. Jesus is speaking in verse 18. He says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. What do you notice about that part? From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Echo Amy, once again. Truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I, I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I want you to notice verse 18 again. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. 
the importance of this phrase cannot be understated. What it confirms to me and to the disciples is that Jesus is in control, that he has loved the ones he has chosen, and Jesus chose Judas despite knowing that he was going to be the betrayer. Jesus chose him, and what does it say in verse 1? He loved him with the infinite compassion of God. He loved his own to the end. But then notice verse 18. Why does he say this? Verse 19. From now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that result or purpose, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So he brings up the treason in verse 18. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Notice what that's from. And then he says, why am I telling you this? So that when I die, when I am ascended, that you may believe that I am he. These verses predict the treason of Judas. And earlier we saw that Peter is clean, but not all of them. Peter is clean. He has been regenerated. He has been redeemed. He has believed in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. But Judas has not. Judas has not believed. And if you notice in verse 18 that part of that verse is in all capital letters. And what does that tell you? Every time you see capital letters in the New Testament, it tells you that the author, John, pulls it from the Old Testament. That is a prophecy from Psalm 41, verse 9. So Judas is the one that lifts up his heel against the Son of God, fulfilling Psalm 41, verse 9. But Jesus displays his sovereignty. He displays that he understands that Judas is the one that described in Psalm 41, verse 9, so that they would believe that he is truly the Messiah in Christ. But what's amazing about this story of Judas and his biography is that, you know, God is sovereign. His, his will is total. And then Judas, underneath God's sovereign will, is acting in his own free will. And what's amazing about this story is that Judas not only fulfills Psalm 41, verse 9, but Judas, exercising underneath this umbrella, fulfills three other prophecies altogether. The asking price of 30 pieces of silver, the return of the money, and the purchase of the potter's field by the chief priests is all prophecies that are fulfilled in the story of Judas. And that comes from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11, and 11, 12, and 13. Which tells me two things. The fact that Judas can work and have free will underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty tells me two things. Number one, that the Bible is true. How could you deny it? I mean, that is amazing when people deny the truth of God's word because something that was written 500 years before Judas was even born, that Judas fulfills perfectly to the exact piece of silver. So you see that the scripture is truth. And number two, it tells me that nothing can thwart the sovereign will of God. Not even a man that is a wolf in sheep's clothing that desires to sell Jesus out. And as mentioned, why does Jesus predict or report the treason? Verse 19, notice that again. From now on, I'm telling you, before it comes to pass, so that the Greek word there is hina. When it does occur, you may believe that I am he. The word I am he is just I am in the original language is ego ami. It's the same words where he says that I am the light of the world. He's proclaiming himself to be Yahweh, to be God. Because without Jesus' prediction, you know, think about this. You know, the disciples are really confused. They are super confused as to what's really happening. Because they still think that Jesus is going to come and establish an earthly kingdom. That's what they were arguing about at dinner. They're still so confused. So, without Jesus predicting Judas' betrayal, what would the disciples think? They would think, oh, well, he wasn't really the Christ, he wasn't really the Messiah, because we were expecting him to establish an earthly kingdom, and therefore he didn't. Therefore, But Jesus predicts it so that they would believe continually that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So we have the treason reported. Treason is prophesied in Psalm 41, Zechariah 11. And yet, who is the traitor? Part 2 is the traitor is revealed, verses 21 through 26. Notice first, watch verse 21. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. I want you to, how does Jesus feel right now at this exact moment? 
It says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled. What's the, what's the, what's the, of course he did. Of course he became troubled because here he is, and the last night he knows within the next 24 hours that he's going to hang on a cross to die for the sins of the world, and his traitor is sitting to his right, and John is probably sitting to his left. That this friend of his, the one that he has loved to the end, to the full, infinite capacity of only God, that the guy that he loves is sitting to his right, and he knows that he's going to betray him, and of course... Jesus is troubled. That word troubled right there is the, is the Greek aorist tense. It's super nerd. Okay. It is an aggressive aorist. It tells me that the stress is on the beginning of the emotion. That at that exact moment, Jesus becomes troubled. But then notice that word betray. It says, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. There's more to that word. The Greek word behind that word betrayed is a Greek word paradidomi, which means to literally give over. But think about how much more intimate that is. That Judas is not going to just betray the Son of God, but he's going to hand him over. And this word paradidomi is a future tense and it's an indicative mood. What does that mean? Future tense, I mean, it's going to happen in the future, and the indicative mood is the the mood of 100% certainty. So think about what the disciples are hearing. They're shocked to think that one of them is going to hand over Jesus, and they hear that indicative mood that it will certainly happen, that one of you will 100% guaranteed betray me, hand me over to the authorities. And this paints a different type of picture than we are accustomed to looking at. But then notice how the disciples react, verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one, of he, which one he was speaking of. And there was reclining on, Je- on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter mo- did, did one of these numbers right here, right? Like you're interrupting your teacher in the middle of class, right? And you do this kind of thing. So Simon Peter gestured and motioned to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom you are speaking. Who's the one that's going to betray you? And he, leaning back, Thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas has everyone fooled, except for one. And, And according to Matthew's account, if you were to look at other passages of this event, that Judas has the audacity to say, after this question, after identifying Judas, Judas says, it is not I that betrays you, Lord. He's such a hypocrite and such a wolf in sheep's clothing that he even says that at that exact moment. But how does Judas become Judas? That's the question. Who is Judas? He is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's one of Jesus' closest associates. And he is the treasurer of the twelve. I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. That Judas is in charge of the money for all of Jesus' ministry. So, capture this thought. So, Judas being one of the twelve and the treasurer of the twelve, what does Judas expect when Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom as Judas wishes for. It would put Judas in the exact role that he wishes, that Judas would essentially be the second in charge over the entire kingdom of Israel, that he would hold the purse strings to the entire nation. As one who controlled the money for the twelve, that would put Judas in right in line to become secretary of the treasury and the chairman of the federal reserve all wrapped up into one. That he is in control of the money over the entire kingdom. So Judas begins to, okay, okay, this guy named Jesus, he's claiming to be the king. He's going to establish the earth kingdom. And I'm the treasurer, therefore I'm going to be powerful. And I'm going to be rich. And I'm going to be over all of the money that comes in to this nation. And what happens? Slowly Judas becomes disappointed. That as the plan of God unfolds, 
Judas begins to realize that, no, it's not an earthly kingdom, that Jesus will die and he will send back to his father and establish a, a kingdom not of this earth yet. So by John 13, I would imagine Judas feels betrayed. He himself feels disappointed. He himself feels betrayed. I mean, I would imagine this, that if you remember the story in John chapter 12 where Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey, right? What do the people expect? It revealed with the palm branches and the word Hosanna. What do they expect Jesus to do? They expect him to not go to the temple. They expect him to go to Pontius Pilate's palace and overthrow the Roman government. So Judas, I suspect, thought the same thing. And so when Jesus rides to the temple and not to Pontius Pilate's palace, he realizes that his dreams of becoming The second most powerful man in the nation of Israel is vanquished. Judas is clearly not in it for God, but in it for himself. And when disappointment comes, it leads to the dismissal of truth. Judas has been sitting at the feet of the Son of God, listening to the truth of God for three years. And Judas takes this disappointment, and then it pushes aside the truth that he has learned. You know, becoming Judas is easy. Becoming someone that is a follower of Jesus Christ and walking away is far easier than someone who stands firm for a lifetime. Becoming Judas, even today, begins with disappointment with God and then a dismissal of truth. Judas expects to be rich and powerful in Jesus' earthly kingdom, and slowly he becomes disillusioned. And how does how did Judas become Judas? He became disappointed with God, and then he dismissed the truth that he had been taught for three years. Becoming Judas begins with disappointment, and then disappointment leads to the dismissal of truth. And as I look back on my life, you know, I look back at those, those faces of Judas's that I've known in my life. And they're no longer one or two, but now they're becoming a crowd. And if I were to really dive down deep into their story and all these people, a lot of their betrayal and walking away from the faith began with disappointment. That the church, the youth group, or their friends walked away, or they got, I have one friend in particular that I see right now, he went to college couldn't find a good church he became disappointed they couldn't have the same community that he had here in Huntsville and then the temptations of the world began to grow and grow and the lust of sin became so great that the luster of Christianity was lost disappointment is the first step to becoming Judas and I've seen this in my own life I'm to speak a little bit from my personal life and I'm going to be a little bit longer winded today, and I apologize. <laughs> okay. Um, from time to time, I talk about this trial, but it doesn't get any more disappointing than what Laura and I experienced six years ago, losing a child. The event that really tested my faith was the day I got that phone call from my wife that my son had passed away, and I was teaching Sunday school that Sunday morning, not suspecting a thing, and then I heard from my wife that my son would, is dead. Um, and talk about disappointment. Because here I am. I spent my life for the cause of Christ. I spent three and a half years and $60,000 having an education. I, 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 was, I was a youth pastor full-time for three years. And I got the phone call on Sunday morning when I was teaching Sunday school. Talk about a... And then that next year, I'll never forget it, 2015, 2016, that next year forever set my path. Because I was clearly disappointed. Friends, can I just speak to all of us? Um, you will face disappointment from God. Can I get me in that one? That there will be something that happens in your life, a trial or difficulty or health, that it is a 100% certainty that you will, at some point in your life, you will be disappointed with God. And if you're not, you're not being truthful, okay? You're lying to yourself. Because we all face it. And I think about, you know, looking back at that 2015, 2016, I, I look back at how did I not, you know, just put up my Bible and walk away. I think there's two reasons. Number one, that I was convinced then and I'm more convinced now today that the Bible is truth. 
That the, the Satan, the enemy, takes that disappointment, he drives a wedge in your relationship with the Lord, and then what does he do? He whispers in your ear that, you know, the Bible really isn't truth. That God really isn't a God of love because your experience tells you something different. The way I was able to stand two things. I did not dismiss the truth of God's word like Judas. He dismisses all of this truth that Jesus has shared. And number two, I had people in my life that were getting down in the muck and mire that were willing to weep with those who weep. You will face disappointment with God. I'm, I'm not one of those preachers that tell you roses and sunshines sun, sun all the time. You know, there will be a point in your life that you will face a difficult trial and you will be let down. And when you face disappointment, what will be your choice? Will you take the next step in becoming like Judas? Will you dismiss the truth? Or will you put a stake in the ground and say, no matter what my experience, my circumstances tell me, that I will still believe the Bible and I will believe that it is God's word and that you are who you say you are? That's the question. That's what Judas does. He's disappointed that he is not second in command. He then takes all of the truth that Jesus provides for him and sets it aside So much so that he could betray the Son of God. So part one is treason reported. Part two is the traitor revealed. And part number three is treachery is reaped. Treachery is reaped. Watch the last part. Then Jesus answered that it is the one from whom I shall dip the morsel. I'll talk about that here in just a second. I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what do you do? Do quickly. Now, culturally speaking, we look at verses 26 and 27 as kind of almost, I kind of took it as almost Jesus teasing Judas by giving him a morsel. But it's actually the opposite. Jesus is extending to him love. It's actually, he gives, the the host would give to the honored guest the first morsel with dip. So he's giving this to Judas. Why? Jesus, one last time, is communicating his love to Judas, giving Judas one more time to change his mind, to betray the Son of God. The morsel here described in verse 26 is a piece of unleavened bread. It's kind of a mix between pita bread and a cracker. And so what Jesus does, he tears this unleavened bread apart, he dips it in this dip, which is typically a paste. It's, a, it's mashed up raisins and dates and sour wine, and he takes it. And what happens to the, the sauce is that as these, these dates and raisins and sour wine begin to congeal, it makes the color of bricks, reminding the nation of Israel and the Jews that are partaking in the Passover meal of the bricks that they made enslaved in Egypt. And here is the one, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the, the Lamb of God who has come to pay the price for sin. He's extending to Judas one last opportunity of his love and of his grace as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that frees them not from chains on earth, but from the chains of sin and death. And how does Judas respond? It says in verse 27 that Satan entered him. Judas goes from disappointment with God into a dismissal of truth, and then the determinations of the enemy bring forth death. How do we avoid becoming Judas? By recognizing the four steps to betrayal, to walking away from the faith, that disappointment with God leads to dismissal of truth, and then the determinations of the enemy brings forth death. What what is fascinating about this passage is you see the progression of the enemy, of Satan, that he put it into the heart of Judas to put the Son of God to death, and then Satan enters Judas. And then notice the cluelessness of the disciples. Judas is such a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing that he has them all fooled. Notice verse 28. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. Didn't you just ask the question that he answered? (laughs) If I was Jesus, I'd be zapping people right here. For, For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the morsel, he went out, and immediately it was night. And only after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension did the disciples really understand the plan of God. 
They, they say this in Acts chapter 1. This is kind of the summation of the story of Judas. Verse 16 of Acts 1 says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas out of Psalm 41 verse 9, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, for he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. So they put it all together. Right at the end, after all the events are said and done, the disciples figure out, that God is who he actually, Jesus is who he actually says he was and who Judas really was. With what time I have left, I would just like to speak. Can I, we, none of us are immune. Can I also just say this? All of us are hypocrites to a degree. Amen. We all know that we should live for Christ. We all know that we should avoid sin, but we all struggle with it, right? We all, none of us are immune to becoming a betrayer of our Savior from walking away from the faith. We'll talk about the theology more next week. But my question for you is, where are you in the process of becoming Judas? Are you on the road, the slow road to walking away from the faith? And I'm just, and with what time I have left, I'm just going to give you four takeaways in the Christian life to help us avoid the fate of Judas. Number one is this, to expect disappointment. In the Christian life, expect disappointment. Can I, okay, all of you that have ever experienced disappointment with God, can I just get an amen? Okay, amen. Let's try that again. Amen. All of us. If you've lived the... If you've lived any length of time as a Christian, you've probably experienced disappointment. But friends, don't stay there. And don't just live and sulk in disappointment because what does is the enemy crawls inside your mind just like he did to Judas and begins to push aside the truth. So number one, expect disappointment. And number two, this is what I'm encouraging you to do, is to put a stake in the ground that the Bible is truth. Put a stake in the ground that the Bible is truth. Because, friends, listen to me. I can tell you from personal experience that you will experience disappointment. And the greatest temptation that we will have is then to doubt the Scripture. But it is truth. That was the, one of the things I hung on to most tightly. It says, Lord, I don't understand your ways. I don't understand why you're allowing this very difficult and painful thing in my life. But I believe your word is truth. Put a fork in the ground, a stake in the ground, a whatever you want to put in the ground. Just do it in your mind. Say, no matter what happens in my life, I know that the Bible is true. Because that's what the enemy will go after. He'll cause you to begin to doubt the miracles of the Bible. He'll get you to doubt the Genesis story. He'll get you to doubt the miracles of Jesus. He'll get you to doubt the resurrection. And slowly but surely, I've seen this so many times in all of the faces of all those Judases that I've known in my life. They all took this step. They begin to dismiss the Bible as truth. Don't do that. It is truth. And it's proven through Judas' own life. But he dismisses it altogether. Put a stake in the ground. Expect disappointment. Number three. Be aware. Be aware of the determinations of the enemy. Uh, one of the greatest tools of our enemy is for us to think he doesn't exist or he doesn't influence us. The enemy is looking for a soul to devour. He is trying to put into your mind the doubts of you have towards Christianity, the lies that you believe, the temptations that will bring you down. He's trying to convince you to doubt everything that you have been told. What does it say in James chapter 1, verse 15? When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Expect disappointments, put a stake in the ground, the Bible is true, beware of the determinations of the enemy. And number four is when you face disappointment, I would encourage you to process it, to talk about it. Confess your sins with one another, pray for one another so you can be healed, James chapter 5. Talk about it with a friend, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's talking to Christians. Let me read that. He's talking to Christians when he says this. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin still affects us. It still deceives us. It still causes us to be, have a warped view of the world when you struggle with disappointment find a friend find another brother or sister in christ and confess your sins to them talk about it confess your struggle to the lord pray 
Have a two-way conversation. Have a conversation with other Christians to overcome. Let us not become another Jeff, Abby, Michael, Sarah, Matt, Ashley, Bert, Brett, Sean, or Judas. Let us stand firm. Putting a stake in the ground that we believe and will always believe that the Bible is true. So when you face disappointment, when we all do, you will not fall behind like Judas, but that you will stand strong. I'm going to speak real quick from, um, I want you to, you don't have to do this awkwardly if you don't want to, but I want you to kind of look in front of you and look to the side. Okay? Hi. What do you see? Every week, I come up here and I see brand new faces. I see a lot of people under the age of 60 here. But what else do you see? You have the older generation. Faces of men and women that have walked with God for decades. You who are young, you under the age of 60, you can learn something from their stories. Because these men and women, I can tell you from personal experience, because I have lived life with them for almost four years, that they have faced disappointment. (laughs) They have faced tremendous disappointment. They have been through pain. And yet, they're still here. They're still walking with the Lord. And we have something to learn. We, younger people, under the age of 60, we have something to learn from them. To take them out to lunch, to hear their story, to see how they could walk with God for 60 or 70 years. I've heard their stories. It is amazing. I stand in awe. As a young man that hears what they have walked through and that they are still faithful to the task. Young people, under 60, take them to lunch. Hear from them. Learn from them. Because they were not Judas. They have learned, even in the midst of the disappointment, to stand strong, to overcome the determinations of the enemy with the sword of the Spirit, and to walk faithfully. I just want to say thank you um, to you the older generation, for the example that you leave for us. Um, Thank you for your example of how to walk worthy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I've known so many Judases in my life. I've known so many people that look like they're followers of Christ and that walk away. Uh, I don't... uh, I understand the process because I can understand it in my own lens and in the life of Judas. And, Lord, I don't want one person here today to end up with the same fate. Uh, Lord, and I, and, Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that have never trusted you, that are not clean, that are not redeemed, that are not saved, so to speak. Lord, that you would convict their hearts, that they would acknowledge that they are a sinner. That they make mistakes and they're imperfect and are separated from the presence of a perfect God. And that they would believe in you as their Savior. Lord, bless the rest of today. I just thank you for the example that Judas gives us of what not to be. And Lord, pray that we would stand strong and live lives, long lives, that would honor you. And thank you for your word. And I lift all this up. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.